The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. If you were with us last week, uh, you know that we actually completed our study of the second chapter of Romans. So you may be wondering, why are we going back? Well, the next chapter is Romans 3, and as Kurt mentioned, I will be out of the pulpit for the next three Sundays in Malawi, uh, along with Matt George, uh, teaching there in the Central African Preaching Academy. And so uh, I will be out of the pulpit for those weeks. And uh, I didn't want to start Romans 3 today and then take a break and then come back to it later. So uh, we will be getting Romans 3 in a short time. This morning, what I wanted to do is do something a little bit different. I want to go back into Romans 2, and I want to deal with something that we spent a little bit of time on, but not a lot, and that's the issue of the conscience. And I believe it's crucial for us to understand the conscience. And so I kind of want to do a, a topical message, starting back in Romans 2, where we, we restarted this, and then uh, give a little more insight onto the issue of the conscience. I want to do this for a few reasons. Uh, the first one is that we didn't deal with this topic in depth when we went through Romans 2. We, we dealt with it in the context of an unbeliever and the role of the conscience in an unbeliever and how the conscience is a form of immediate revelation from God. So there's immediate revelation which God uses to reveal himself to us through a means, that being creation primarily. That's known as immediate revelation. And then there's immediate revelation where God reveals himself to us without a means, and one of the primary ways he does that is through the conscience. And we said in Romans chapter 2 that those who are without Christ cannot claim ignorance before God in the day of judgment because their conscience on that day will actually side with God, that their conscience will actually bring them under condemnation and make them accountable to God, and they will discover before the throne room of God that their conscience testifies against them and therefore are judged on that day of final judgment. That's what we talked about in the context of Romans chapter 2, that day when their consciences will be fully informed of every violation against God, and that will then function against them. What we want to deal with this morning is we want to kind of draw out a little bit more on that issue and help us see how the conscience actually works in the life of a believer, and I think you'll see this very helpful. There's a second reason I want to go through this with you, and the second reason is I'm convinced that a clean conscience and a pure conscience is essential to a lifestyle of holiness for a believer. That if you and I are called to live a lifestyle of holiness, and we are, because in Scripture there's many, many statements about our need to pursue holiness, to be holy as God is holy to make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust, to walk in the Spirit so you will not gratify the lust of your flesh. These kind of statements just permeate the Scriptures about our need to be holy and our need to run from sin and towards righteousness. And God in His grace has given us a powerful tool to aid us in this battle against sin. It's the conscience. You have a conscience. Not, it's not just for unbelievers. It's, it's for all of us. And so God's word is very clear that he's given us an advocate. 
He's given us an ally. He's given us a, a friend in our conscience to help us have victory over sin in our battle with our own fleshly lust. Now, listen, it's not infallible. I want you to understand this as we begin. Your, your conscience is not an infallible guide, meaning it's not perfect. It, it, it can have problems, and we're going to talk about some of those things. So it's not a, a perfect guide, but at the same time, it's a helpful tool in allowing us to sense what's right and wrong, and allowing us to determine holiness and purity from sin and evil. And so God has given us this, this mechanism to help us mortify the flesh. And maybe you're here this morning, and there is a nagging sin in your life that is just... It's just, you're just struggling, and maybe you're just battling it, and you want to have victory over it, and you need to know that God has given you multiple tools through His Word, and through the Holy Spirit, and through the Bride of Christ, the church, but He's also given you a conscience. And I want you to see how that conscience can be a mighty tool in bringing you through those times of temptation and bringing you to purity and holiness. That's the second reason. The third reason I want to take us through a little study of the conscience, is that we live in a culture that tells us to ignore our conscience. We, we live in a society and we live in a culture that wants to train us to not think biblically. And even more than that, it wants to reprogram our thinking with a mentality that is unbiblical and anti-God and atheistic. You, you just need to turn on the television. You just need to be on the internet. You just need to go to movies. You just need to turn on your iPod with music from the world. And your brain and your mentality and your mind will be permeated with thoughts by the world to make you think differently and to reorient your value system and your belief system. You need to realize this, that if you just want to do nothing, you're going to be pressed into the mold of worldliness. And the world wants you to, to jettison this mentality that, that you have to come under the, the, the truth of the Scriptures and the world that we live in wants to misinform your conscience. And secondly... When your conscience goes off, the world wants to tell you to shut it up. The world wants to tell you to silence it. The world wants to tell you to ignore it. The world wants to tell you to suppress it. The world says any guilt feeling that you might have is not your problem. It's someone else's problem, yet you're the, you're the recipient of someone else's issue. And so any of that guilt is bad for yourself. It's bad for your self-esteem. It's not healthy for you. You shouldn't, you shouldn't allow these guilty feelings to come up. That's, that's bad stuff. And so the part of Satan's strategy then is to corrupt your thinking and to desensitize your thinking and to get Get you to ignore that mechanism that God has placed within you to help you have a sense of right and wrong and holiness versus sin. You need to know you're up against this. You need to know that part of Satan's strategy is to blunt the effectiveness of the conscience that God has given you and to possibly, if possible, to kill your conscience. And so, for all of those reasons, I, I want to take some time to flesh out and fill out this understanding of the conscience. Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 is where we looked at this, and we're going to come to that in just a moment. Let me give you a definition again of the conscience, and let me just give you a very basic understanding of what this is. The conscience is that faculty within human beings 
that assesses what is good and what is bad in us. I'll say it again if you want to write it down. The conscience is that faculty within human beings that assesses what is good within us and what is bad within us. It's that inner sense of right and wrong. It's that inner moral code. It's that that built-in ethical code. It's that built-in moral consciousness that enables you to discern between what is right and what is wrong. The word sunedesis is the Greek word. It's the New Testament word. By the way, there's no Hebrew word for conscience. And that may be because the Hebrew mindset of the conscience was wrapped up in the Hebrew concept of heart or lab. And so that may be the reason why there's no Hebrew word for conscience. It's just part of the heart and the mind and the inner person. But when you come to the New Testament, there's a distinction. And the distinction that is given in the word itself is the word sunedesis, a word compound, the word that means to know with, to have a knowledge with. It's the same word as the word conscience, conscience, conscientia. And those two words, when put together, literally mean to have knowledge or to with knowledge, to have a knowledge of self. And it refers to that immaterial component of our inner person that is able to evaluate our inner motives and our true thoughts. This is your conscience. It has a twofold purpose. Your conscience does two things. Your conscience, on the one hand, accuses you when you sin and it excuses you when you're doing what God has told us to do or and it's in accord with your truths or your value system or your belief. And so your conscience does both of those things. On the one hand, it accuses you when your conduct doesn't match your value system, and then it excuses you when you're living in consistency with your value system. So it does both of those things. When you sin, when you violate your conscience, it, it triggers feelings of shame and it triggers feelings of insecurity and anguish and regret and fear and disgrace. And yet, when you live consistently with your conscience, it commends us. It brings you joy. It brings you gladness. It brings you happiness. It brings you a sense of well-being. And so this conscience does both of those things. It accuses and it excuses. It's kind of like a, a warning system. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Your, your conscience is like a warning device. It's this mechanism that's placed within you that kind of acts like a security system. It's like those lights on your dashboard. They start to flash. You've got low oil pressure. You better go get that checked out. Your, your temperature's rising. You better go get that checked out. That check engine light means there's something wrong, and, and you should go get that checked out. We've got in our suburban a light that keeps going off on our airbags, and we just ignore it. And that's currently what you do with the conscience sometimes. You can just ignore that. Well, that's what the conscience is. It's this warning device. It's this security system that acts within you and activates within you when you do something inconsistent with your belief system or when it is consistent with your belief system to confirm it. We might say that conscience is to the soul what pain is to the body. Pain is good. We don't like pain. We try to avoid pain. We, we don't want to engage in pain because pain hurts. And yet, pain is good because pain makes us aware of the fact that something is wrong. 
When you put your hand on the burner on your stove, you don't want to leave it there because that's bad for your hand. So pain alerts you to that, and pain says, take your hand away, and it shows you that something bad is happening. That's the conscience. The conscience is to the soul what pain is to the body. And if you want to stay healthy physically, pain helps you do that. If you want to stay healthy spiritually, conscience helps you do that. And so it is this human faculty that, that judges our actions and our thoughts by the light that God has given us to give us a, a framed-up value system. So that's what the conscience is. It is this human faculty that alerts us to when our conduct either matches or doesn't match our belief system. It's a distinctly human faculty. Hey, animals don't have this. Sorry, dog lovers, cat lovers, no matter what you think, your favorite pet does not have a conscience. Uh, they can't discern their thoughts. They, they can't evaluate their thoughts. They, they don't have any ability to make a, a moral evaluation. They can't understand their motives. They can't understand really their behavior. They're instinctual. They don't really think about the consequences or the motive behind their actions. So this is a distinctly human mechanism. It's what separates us, among us other things, from the animals, and because of that, it is a God-given gift. Listen to how J.I. Packer describes this. He says, an educated, sensitive conscience is God's monitor. It alerts us to the moral quality of what we do or plan to do. It forbids lawlessness and irresponsibility and makes us feel guilt, shame, and fear of the future retribution that it tells us we deserve when we have allowed ourselves to defy its restraints. That's a good definition. Your conscience is God's monitor placed within you to alert you to the moral quality of what you do or plan to do and whether it's something you should or should not do. Everyone has a conscience. I want to draw your attention to Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 again, because this is where we begin looking at this issue. And, and really, in a sense, th this is the greatest definition of the conscience anywhere in the Scriptures. Look what Paul says in verse 14. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. This then is, is the conscience. And Paul defines it for us here as something that even Gentiles who don't know God possess, and they give evidence of the fact that they possess this conscience when verse 14 says, they who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. He's talking about those people in the world who've never had the written word of God. It's not written down anywhere for them. They've never heard it, but that doesn't excuse them. And it doesn't excuse them because they have written on their hearts an awareness of what's right and wrong. Most people know it's wrong to kill. Most people know it's wrong to, to commit adultery. Most people know it's wrong to lie or to steal. And Paul says when people conduct themselves accordingly, verse 15 says, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. They don't have the actual law, but they have the work of the law written in their hearts. 
And so this is why no unbeliever can plead ignorance. This is why no one can stand on the day of judgment and say, well, God, I never heard of you. I never, I never knew about you. I never understood anything about who you were and how you were requiring holiness. I never, no, no, no. Nobody can plead ignorance on the day of judgment because God has told them here that they are accountable based on the fact that they possess a sense of the law written in their conscience. That's what verse 15 says. Their consciences bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. That's what the conscience is. It's a witness. It stands in the court of law and testifies to the reliability of what is stated. Your conscience is a witness. And it's privy to all your thoughts, it's privy to all your secrets, it's privy to all your motivations. Your conscience stands as a witness. It's kind of the the witness of the soul, or it's kind of the, the counsel of the human heart. Maybe you could think about this as an attorney. And sometimes this attorney acts as a prosecuting attorney, and sometimes this conscience acts as a, as a defense attorney. And that's exactly what Paul says at the end of verse 15. He says that this conscience alternately accuses or else defends them. It does both of those things, as I said. So in t- certain times, your conscience acts as a prosecuting attorney. It, it brings conviction. It charges you. It, it, it says that you're doing something wrong or what you're about to do is wrong. And then on the other hand, sometimes the conscience acts as a defense attorney and says, no, what you're doing is right. It's consistent with your value system. It's consistent with your belief structure. And so at times your conscience accuses you and at other times it excuses you. There's a problem, though. There's a problem with the conscience. And you need to understand this because you need to know that this mechanism that God has given you is not infallible. It's not perfect. It's not the the final judgment. It's helpful and it's necessary and it will aid you in your pursuit of holiness if you program it correctly. But your conscience in and of itself is not an infallible moral guide. And the reason for that is because, listen, The conscience does not create its own values and standards. Your conscience simply reacts to the values and standards that you program it to react to. That's very, very important. Your conscience is not its own law. Your conscience is not the law of God. Your your conscience is simply a servant to your value system. So whatever value system you determine, whatever you program into your mind, whatever you choose to be the value system by which you live your life, your conscience reacts to that. And so if your value system is off, if your belief system is off, then your conscience is not going to be able to accurately give you the data that you need to live in consistence with God's Word. One writer says this, He says, conscience is not an independent agent communicating information to us, but a God-given self-reflective tool to keep us faithful to what we believe. 
That's his way of saying your conscience is a servant to your value system. You can't rely on it solely to make you conduct yourself in a manner that's consistent with God's will if you've not programmed your value system to be determined by the will of God. Do you get that? You may be totally lost. It's the Word of God that must frame up your value system. Listen, Muslims have a conscience. Terrorists have a conscience. Mass murderers, though seared, have a conscience. Jehovah's Witness have a conscience. People who don't know God or love God, they have a conscience, but it's been informed by a wrong value system. And so in order to be godly people, in order to be the kind of people who know God and love God and walk with God and live in holiness, we have to ensure that the the conscience that we have is informed by the truth of Scripture so that the conscience is reacting to the proper value system. So it's not its own authority. It's not a law unto itself. It's, It's a skylight, not a light bulb. It doesn't produce its own light. It simply lets the light of something in, and that something for us as believers needs to be the Word of God and the truth of God's Word. Here's the problem, though. If you are not informing your conscience with the truth of God's Word, your conscience will become corrupt and crippled and ineffective. Let me illustrate. Maybe you heard a number of years ago, back in 2009, of an aircraft that crashed. It was an Air France flight from Rio de Janeiro to Paris, France, and about four hours into the flight out of Rio de Janeiro, it disappeared from radar. And it took a while for investigators to figure out that this aircraft actually crashed in the Atlantic Ocean. 228 people lost their lives. It was the worst accident in Air France history and the worst accident to occur in the Airbus 330 aircraft. It took two years for investigators to find the black boxes, the bottom of the sea. And once they found them and they evaluated them and they investigated them, they found out what was the cause of the crash. And the cause of the crash was a frozen up pedo tube. You don't know what that is. The pedo tube is the instrument on the outside of the aircraft that reads airspeed. And these pedo tubes got frozen up. And because they got frozen up, they gave inconsistent airspeed measurements to the aircraft, which was on autopilot. That kicked the autopilot off, which then made the, the air crew uh, respond. They didn't respond properly. Instead of recovering to the right airspeed, they actually put the aircraft in an aerodynamic stall from which it could not recover, and it crashed into the ocean. Why? Because it had wrong data coming into it. And if you've got the wrong data coming into your conscience, it won't be framed up properly and it won't react properly and lead us to righteousness and holiness. We need to understand what this mechanism is that God has given us because it is a mighty, mighty, powerful tool, a great gift from God to aid us when properly programmed. And I want to show you that Because I believe if you understand that, it will be a powerful aid to your own sanctification. Let me give you five different kinds of conscience described in the Scriptures. 
Okay, so here's the outline. If you've been waiting for it, here it is. Five different consciences, five different kinds of conscience that Scripture refers to that you need to understand in order to be people after a heart, have a heart for God, in order to live a life of righteousness and holiness. So I want to walk through these with you, and then I want to draw some practical implications on how this conscience can help you in mortifying the flesh. Okay, first, number one, the first kind of conscience you need to be aware of is a clean conscience or a pure conscience or a healthy conscience. And I would like you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. This is, this is going to be a little bit of a Bible study this morning. We're not just walking through one text this morning. I want to take you to a few other passages. So please take your Bibles to go to Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 22, and I want you to see how the writer of Hebrews here describes for us this clean conscience. Hebrews 10, verse 22, he says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, I want you to draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having your hearts sprinkled or cleansed with an evil, from an evil conscience. So the writer here describes a conscience which has been cleansed, a conscience which has been rejuvenated, a conscience which has been given new life and clean and pure. You say, how does, how does that happen? Go back to uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews describes for us how this conscience can be and was cleansed. I want you to notice in verses 1 to 8, I just want to walk through this very quickly because what the writer of Hebrews does is he shows us the futility of the Old Testament system to actually cleanse a conscience. He uses the example of the tabernacle. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 9, for even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table, or the table and the sacred bread, which is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded in the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot speak now in detail. Now, when these things have been prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. So what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's saying, um, there is no way for that tabernacle system to cleanse your conscience. That Levitical system, that sacrificial system, that old priesthood, that old covenant that, that had no ability to give you access to God, to cleanse your conscience. Look at verse 9. This is all a symbol for the time then present according to which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. None of that cleanses your conscience. 
None of that gives you a, a freedom from the guilt of sin. None of that could do what, what the, the, the believer in the New Testament enjoys. None of that could cleanse a guilty conscience. It had no efficacy in actually removing the guilt of your sin. But Christ does. Look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How does your conscience get cleansed? Through Christ. Through the work of Christ, through His death, through His resurrection, through His life, through His righteousness, through His work at Calvary, applied to your heart, to your life. His work does what the old covenant could not do. His work is effective. The work of the old covenant simply covered sin. It was a temporary covering and demonstrated the faith and obedience of the worshiper of the Old Testament, but it couldn't cleanse the conscience. But Christ does because His atonement fully satisfies the demands of a holy God. And so this cleansed conscience is, is the fruit of salvation, if you're a believer, your conscience has already been cleansed because the, the guilt of sin has been removed by the work of Christ in justification, and you're positionally declared righteous because of Christ. And now that, that guilt that weighed you down before coming to Christ, like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, is gone. The weight is gone. That, that, that load has been lifted off your back and the guilt of sin has been broken. You have a clean conscience, positionally. Now listen, the emphasis now in the rest of Scripture is to live according to the clean conscience you have. And what we see all throughout the New Testament are examples of men like Paul and Peter who actually lived on the basis of a clean conscience. That became kind of the, the basis for how they conducted themselves. Let me give you some examples. Acts, chapter 23, verse 1. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Here he is, he's been arrested, he's standing before the Sanhedrin, they're bringing charges against him, and he says, men, my conscience is clean. Acts 24, verse 16. In view of this, Paul says, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. This is Paul before Felix, standing for the same charges, and he says to Felix, uh, Mr. Felix, my conscience is clean. You, you brought these charges against me, but they're not true. My conscience is clear. Let me show you another example. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Why don't you turn there? 2 Corinthians chapter 1. One more example of how Paul conducts himself on the basis of a clean conscience. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. You remember that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians to defend his apostleship. There were accusations being leveled against him that he was accused of adulterating the Word of God. They, they, they charged him with being wicked. They charged him with being deceitful. They charged him with being corrupt. They charged him with being a hypocrite. And he writes back this letter known as 2 Corinthians, which was actually 3 Corinthians, uh, to defend his apostleship. 
Look what he says in verse 12 of chapter 1. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. See what he's saying? You brought these charges against me, you false teachers. You accused me of this and this and this. You've criticized me. You've complained against me. You've accused me of all of these things. But my conscience is clear. I've conducted myself on the basis and the testimony of a clean conscience. What a blessed way to live. Right? What a, what, a, what a privilege and a joy to live this way that when someone brings a charge against you, you can say, I'm listening, I hear it, but my conscience is clear. There's no secret sins in my life. I'm not trying to cover anything up. There's, there, I am who I am. Who, who you see is who I am. I'm not, I'm not trying to hide anything. Friends, th- this is the blessing and the joy of a clean conscience. Listen to some of these other verses. Don't go there. Just listen. 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. 1 Timothy 1.18 and 19, this command I trust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience. 1 Timothy 3.9, deacons are called to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank my God whom I serve with a clear conscience. Hebrews 13.18, pray for us. We are sure that we have a good conscience. 1 Peter 3.16, keeping a good conscience so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ would put to shame. Over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, there is this this example that we should conduct ourselves on the basis of a clean conscience. So, is yours clean, pure, healthy? Sometimes I'm asked as a pastor, Todd, who keeps you accountable? That's a fair question. And I I think it comes in the heart of those who say we see pastors falling committing sin, embezzling from their churches, running off with the secretary, engaged in immorality with someone in their church. Who's who's asking you the hard questions, Todd? Who's holding you accountable so that that doesn't happen to you and to our church? That's a fair question. And there's lots of people who hold me accountable. The elders do. Very grateful for those men in my life at our church who, who are willing to be in my life and sometimes ask me the hard questions. I have two pastors on the West Coast that I, I Skype with every few months and we talk about what we're, how we're doing and what we're learning and I'm grateful for those two men in my life who I get to see on the computer screen to ask me the difficult questions. I'm grateful for that. My kids keep me accountable. Um, Parenting is the most humbling enterprise there is. My wife, do you realize, my my wife actually expects me to conduct myself according to the things I preach. (laughs) I mean, is that the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard? Unbelievable. 
There's all kinds of levels of accountability in my life. But listen, I could fool every one of them, right? I could lie to their face. I could deceive them. But there's an accountability partner in me and in you that knows who you really are. It's the Spirit of God who works through your conscience as it reacts to the Word of God. And I'm telling you, I can't get away from that. So, who keeps me accountable? All those people I just listed. But my greatest level of accountability is my own conscience that testifies against me when I sin. And so, I'll I'll tell you real frankly, that makes me be very careful what I put into my mind. And that makes me evaluate what movies I watch. And that makes me evaluate what I look at on the internet. And that makes me really evaluate whether I click on that YouTube clip on the side panel, which is tempting me to click on it. There's nobody watching. And I could get away with it, but not my conscience. So, this has a dramatic effect upon how I live my life because I don't want to live under the guilt and the weight of a conscience that's always going off. So, this is the, this, this is the importance of a clean conscience. And I wonder this morning, is your conscience clean? Number two, there is a second kind of conscience and it is an evil conscience. It is an evil conscience. If you remember back to Hebrews 10, verse 22, you don't need to go back there. I just read it a few minutes ago. Let us draw near with a sincere faith and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And an evil conscience is that which will not listen to the warning system of your conscience when it activates. So the person with the evil conscience is the one who refuses to listen to it. It's the person who puts the tape on their dashboard over the warning light. It's the person who hits their dashboard to make the light go off. I don't want to listen to it. I don't want to see it. This is the evil conscience, the one who refuses to do, to listen to the conscience, which is convicting them. Their conviction is not acted on. This is the person who goes to the movies and says, man, that movie was so bad, I, I, I literally almost walked out eight times. Why didn't you? You ever have friends, maybe in your past, who, who pushed you a little too far, a little, a little further than you were comfortable to go? I remember back to my high school days and being on the swim team and going out with our friends on the swim team after some practices, and there, there was one guy on our swim team that he, he was just trouble, Kyle. That, that guy, he was just, he, he was always kind of pushing me to the edges of what I was comfortable with, and he was always kind of pushing me a little further than what I wanted to go, and, and I remember my conscience just kind of pricking my heart and saying, Todd, you shouldn't hang out with Kyle tonight, and yet there's times I would go hang out with Kyle, and sure enough, one night we're out, and Kyle says, let's go do mailbox baseball. And at that point, my conscience is screaming to me, um, you shouldn't be here and you shouldn't be doing this. And so, 
sure enough, Kyle grabs another guy and a baseball bat, and they're hanging out the window doing mailbox baseball. And I'm in the back seat thinking, I really don't want to be here right now. But I didn't listen to my conscience. It was evil. I didn't act on the conviction that the conscience was, was revealing to me. That, that's an evil conscience. Someone who refuses when the prosecuting attorney stands up and says, you're guilty and you should stop what you're about to do or what you're doing because it's going to lead you into destruction. But instead of listening to it, you silence it. You turn it off. There's a third kind of conscience. And this is the result of an evil conscience that is not heeded. Number three is a seared conscience. A seared conscience. This, This results when a person continually and repeatedly abuses their conscience and violates it by not listening to it and and continually turning it off and suppressing it, that person eventually will have a seared conscience. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul says to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. This is the person who has so repeatedly told their conscience to shut up And the result is that it's scarred. It's been seared. You know what that meat looks like on your grill after it's been on there a little while? You've charred it. You've seared it. You've burned the outside of it. You've kind of covered it in in this hard skin on the outside. It's scarred. It's seared. It doesn't really feel. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's, It's the scar on your body that you touch and you can't really sense it. I have a scar on my leg from riding my bike when I was eight. Man, I was just killing it on the trails, and I hit a tree head on. You should see the tree. <laughs> but there's a nice big scar across my right leg, and, and I touch it, and I, I can't feel it. There's no sense there. There's no, there's no feeling because that, that scar has just kind of built up and, and has removed any, any sense of feeling in that area of my leg. And so that, that's exactly what Paul is talking about here, a, a seared conscience to the point that you, you think you're okay and you're, you're cutting corners and you're sinning and, and yet you don't even really feel much conviction anymore. And the reason is because repeatedly you've told your conscience to shut up to the point that it's now seared and covered and, and really doesn't give you much sense of the danger that you're in. And if that's the point that you're at, you are in the greatest danger because you don't feel. Conscience has been cauterized. I was a pre-med major, and there were a few times I got to scrub into some surgeries when I was at the Air Force Academy and, and uh, uh, being deployed on a couple bases. I, I actually got to go into surgery and be a part and watch and kind of stand over what was happening there. And, and uh, I remember them still, and I still remember the smell of cauterized flesh. I could handle everything, the sight, the sounds, the blood, but the smell cauterized flesh still just kind of lingers with me. 
It's, it's, it's deadened, it's fried, it's seared. It's cut off to any blood supply. That's a seared conscience. When you've gotten to the point that you, you really don't feel much anymore, the conviction's essentially gone, you've ruined your conscience, you've desensitized it, you've ravaged it to the point that it really doesn't activate now anymore. Number four is a defiled conscience. A defiled conscience. Turn to Titus 1.15. You're almost there. Turn a couple pages to the, to the right. Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. This is the person who has told their conscience so many times to stop that it's become seared, and it's become seared to the point that they are unable to judge and make any distinction between what is pure and what is impure, what is holy and what is unholy, what is right and what is sinful. They've lost all capacity to make moral judgments, and the end result is a defiled conscience. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, their glory is in their shame. They've gotten to the point where the very things they do, they're proud of, they're sinful. The very things that they should be ashamed of, they're rejoicing in. Remember Romans chapter 1, verse 32? Don't go there, but just listen. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is the person with a defiled conscience where they can not only engage in sin, but they can applaud others when they engage in sin with them. This is a whole different level of depravity. The warning system is not functioning anymore. What is right is wrong. What is wrong is right. And you just need to look at our culture. This is where we are. We are living in a world, in a country, in a culture that by and large has defiled consciences, particularly in the area of sexuality. Family's been redefined. Marriage has been redefined. And we've got a culture applauding these things that should be our shame. There's a fifth kind. It's a weak conscience. And this one's different from the ones I've just told you about. This is different than a seared conscience. This is different than a defiled conscience. This is different than an evil conscience. So kind of take this one and put it in a separate category. The, the weak conscience is the person, the believer, who has a conscience that is hypersensitive or overreactive to issues that are not sin. This is the person whose conscience is more likely to accuse them than a strong conscience. This is typically the mark of a, a, an immature believer. This is the mark of someone who, who, who really doesn't understand what God's Word has to say, particularly in the gray areas, particularly in some of those areas of life where there's some freedom in Christ, where there's some liberty. They tend to fret about things that should not cause the conscience to be alarmed. They, they tend to be immature in this. Their consciences are easily wounded. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and let me just show you where... 
Paul describes this weak conscience. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you remember that Paul is dealing with people who were offering meat that was sacrificed to idols, and in many cases it was not an issue for believers, but there were some believers in Corinth who really struggled with the fact that they were eating meat offered to idols. This is a liberty area. This is a Christian gray area. And so in that day, there was food that was offered to pagan gods in Corinth. The priests and the goddess or the priestesses of those temples would then take that food because the idols can't eat food. And they would sell that at a reduced price. And so you could go get a deal. You could go get a blue light special on your meat if you went to the place where it was sold from the pagan temple. You got a good deal on it rather than going to, you know, Myers where it's more expensive. So you got a deal on your hamburger. And some Christians would look at that and say, well, was this offered to an idol? Because if it is, I can't eat it. It's a weak conscience. And in verses 4 to 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, hey, listen, this is not a big deal. You have liberty to eat meat offered to idols because the idol is non-existent. There's no such thing as a, as a, a real God that exists in the form of an idol, so it's doing nothing. Eat the meat. But he also recognizes that there's some people who don't have that freedom in their hearts or their consciences to do that. Their, their faith was not strong enough to embrace that. So in verse 7, look what he says. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is now defiled. There are people who were saved out of that pagan background, who were saved out of idolatry, who had lived that way, and the memories of their old pagan life were too strong, and they say, I can't do that. That, that, that brings back too many memories of my past. I, I don't want to violate my conscience. Paul says in verse 8, well, food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do eat, nor the better if we do not eat. He says, what's the big deal? It's, it's food, eat it. But he says in verse 9, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? He says, hey, go eat the meat. But if you as a strong believer know that your eating of meat will violate the conscience of another believer, that will become a stumbling block to them, so don't do it. Here's the reason. Look at verse 11. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died, and thus by sinning against the brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Paul says, don't you dare put a stumbling block in the life of someone whose conscience is weak, because if you teach them to violate their conscience and they go through life, then learning to violate their conscience, they are in a world of trouble. Yes, they should be free to eat it. Yes, they should be mature enough to handle it. Yes, they, they should be at a point in their spiritual life where this gray area shouldn't cause them to stumble. But if they're not, don't force them to eat because you teach them to violate their conscience, which is worse than anything, because then it is sin. So, Paul's hope and Paul's prayer for this kind of person is ultimately that they would grow in the faith. And if you're here this morning and you have a weaker faith, Paul's hope and prayer for you is to grow in that, to mature in that. 
Don't violate your conscience today, but grow, mature, become more like Christ. Have your faith fully informed by the Word of God. Maybe it's movies. Grew up never having to go to a movie. Movies are horrible. Movies are of the devil. You should never go to a movie. Well, what about Frozen? <laughs> is it that bad? You know, so the issue then is it's a gray area. And a person who's mature in their faith, well, you know, Frozen's a good movie. Kids love it. But the person who maybe isn't there yet, maybe they say, I, I can't do that because, uh, you know, it just, it just reminds me of my background. Well, don't cause them to stumble, and that person should grow and mature in their faith. And so it's kind of a complicated issue, but the bottom line is a person with a weak conscience should never violate their conscience. They should grow and mature in that. Well, those are the five different kinds of consciences. So what do we do with this? Let me give you a couple closing practical instructions. How, how, do we, how do we make sure that our conscience is like the first one, the clean healthy, pure conscience? How do we make sure that we're not violating our consciences and we're not deadening them and we're not searing them and we're not living with a, an evil or defiled conscience? Let me just give you two, two things. Number one, inform your conscience with the Word. Inform your conscience with the Word. Remember I told you that your conscience is a servant to your value system. And so if you're a believer who wants to honor Christ and you truly want to walk in holiness and obedience before Him, then the thing that is first and foremost a priority is for your value system to be framed up by the Word of God. So be a man and be a woman who, who lives by and saturates your mind with Scripture. Todd, is this the, are you having your quiet time talk? Yeah, sure. Are you hiding God's Word in your heart? Are you saturating your mind with the Scripture? Are you a man or a woman who understands that in order for your conscience to be fully freed up and fully operational, it has to be framed and founded on a value system that will honor the Lord? And the only value system that will honor the Lord is contained in the Scripture, the objective truth of His Word. So let me just make this obvious. If you spend most of your time watching television, surfing the Internet, and playing video games listening to worldly music, your conscience will not be your best friend. The only way your conscience can be your, your best ally and your best advocate is if it's framed up with the Word of God. So it can be the mechanism that then operates and reacts to the truths and the propositional objective reality of the Word of God. Number two. A second practical application of this is respond immediately to an active conscience. Respond immediately. The moment you hear, feel that conscience go off, the moment it reacts, the, the moment of that first pang of your conscience that says, whoa, time out. You sure you want to do this? You react, you stop, 
You mortify that sin. You run away. You, you flee sin. You don't mess around with it. You don't say, how close to the line can I get? You run away. You flee that temptation. You, you run as fast and as hard as you can away from that situation. You turn from sin when your conscience tells you what you're doing or about to do is wrong. Run. I don't know if we run enough as Christians. We cater. We coddle. Paul says in the context of sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee immorality. Fugo immorality. Be a fugitive. You run as fast and as hard as you can away from sin. When that conscience activates, don't plead with it. Don't play with it. You run from sin so your conscience remains clean and pure and you don't begin down a road of searing your conscience. Listen, the clean conscience is not the Christian who never sins. The clean conscience is the Christian who reacts immediately when the warning system goes off. You're never going to get to the point where you don't sin, but you can get to the point where your conscience is rightly informed, and then when you operate and respond appropriately, to the conscience when it alerts you. It's a great mechanism, powerful tool to aid you in your pursuit of holiness. Father, we thank you that you have helped us to understand part of our immaterial nature, something that we normally don't think much about. And yet, this warning system that is a powerful aid and a tremendous gift from You, oh Lord, I pray that we would not silence our consciences. I pray that You'll help us to not suppress them, help us to not sear them, but Lord, help us to be those kind of people who, whose consciences are so tender and so soft, and so sensitive, that when it alerts us to what we're about to do is sin, that, that we don't have to think about it, that we've not scabbed it over so much that we really don't feel that conviction anymore. But God, let us be those who run at the first pang of our conscience, because Lord, our, our desire is to honor Christ our desire is to pursue holiness, our desire is to walk in obedience, and our desire is to bring glory and honor to our Savior Christ, who purchased us and for whom we now live. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.